Welcome to the Core Women Podcast, the place for women entrepreneurs, authors, and self-starters looking to build community and gain valuable insights through expert interviews with women at the top of their game. Join your host, podcaster, producer, expert coach, entrepreneur, and author, Dr. Summer Watson, as she aims to inspire and empower you through these candid conversations. Lean in and embrace the journey. It's time to start the show. Here's your host, Dr. Summer Watson. Today on the show, I would like to welcome Diane Darling, who is a professional leadership coach and speaker, author of the book, The Networking Survival Guide, published by McGraw-Hill, member of Chief Executives Club of Boston, founding member of 2020 Women on Board, and avid traveler. We have a lot to chat about today, so let's jump right into this and welcome, Diane. My pleasure to be with you, Summer. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here with you. So before we jump into your professional background, I'd like to ask you one question. Please describe your journey thus far in one word. Resolute. Resolute. Okay. I haven't heard that one yet. Please tell me why this word is important to you. I think resolute is a word that combines resilience it combines persistence. You know, journeys are hard. Journeys are hard. And I kind of don't want something like hard. It's just like, oh, that sounds like a painful word and difficult word. But I think resolute blends something that's hard, but that you keep at it because there's a purpose, because there's something that you want. That journey is worth it. And I feel that a lot of people see the beautiful things on Facebook, the beautiful things on Instagram, even LinkedIn now has gotten a little bit, you know, let me tell you how wonderful I am. And, you know, and there's a lot of people making things look easy. And I hope people, your listeners realize there will be tears, there will be pain. And for me, it was yesterday. I mean, I kind of just wanted to put my head under the pillow and just say, please, dear God, make this stop. But then you put your feet on the floor the next day and, and you keep at it. I get that. And a lot of that stuff on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, lifestyle marketing, they want you to see the beginning and the difficulty and they want you to see the end, but they don't give you any of that in between. And that's where the hard work, the ups and downs, the resiliency, the wisdom gained, that's where that all takes place. I wish they'd show that because that's the reality. So I love that word. So let's talk about your professional speaking history. You have done this for a long time. Have you always loved public speaking or is there more of a story about how you developed this skill? I was very good at public speaking in my younger years. And then all of a sudden something just gripped me with fear. Okay. And I had done plenty of it, but all of a sudden I was giving one of my workshops on networking And I was maybe at the second sentence when somebody said, I'm so sorry to stop you. I think you've eaten something you're allergic to. Your neck is in red blotches. Oh, wow. And I felt nervous, but to know that it, it literally glared. Right. (laughs) And I said, no, I think I'm just a little nervous. You know, she was not embarrassed, but she felt, you know, and I appreciated her concern for sure. But then I went and bought a whole bunch of red turtlenecks. 
And I did workshops for probably the next two years in red turtlenecks because I felt like, well, if I break out in red, at least it'll glow. You know, it just it'll kind of look like I'm flush. You probably have seen this with people who have those red blotches when they're nervous. And so when I realized that the red blotches on my neck are distracting somebody from hearing how my words can help them succeed, I need to figure this out. So I went to Cambridge Adult Ed here in Boston and took acting classes. And then I took stand-up comedy. My next thing to do, which I'm a little too afraid to do, is improv. Mm. That would be the next thing I would do. Having said that, I now am very confident in my public speaking. I'm also, I feel a good student when someone says to me, you need to do this differently. One example I'm at lots of networking events. People introduce themselves so fast, you can't hear half the words. And they feel like they want to tell you everything about themselves in these 30-second little elevator pitches. It's not realistic. It's just not realistic. And this is what acting actually did help me understand. I needed to slow down. And I'm intentionally doing it right now as I'm saying it. I'm realizing in the beginning, there was an energy. And it's good energy, but then you talk too fast. So you want to watch your words go to the screen and come back or go to the back of the room and come back, slow it down. And also means you care about your words. It will mean you're going to use fewer of them. Mm -hmm. And one person gave me feedback. And I remember after my first few talks, I would wake up and I'm like, oh my God, I forgot to tell them that one thing. I owe them a refund and I had charged them 10 bucks. And I forgot to tell them this. I, I need to call them tomorrow and apologize. And she watched me. She was a former local news anchor here. And she said, Diane, you can't tell everybody what you know in 30 minutes. You can't tell them everything. You can tell them some. Right. So part of it is picking what you want to share and knowing it's not going to be everything. Absolutely. And I love what you mentioned about when you first meet somebody at an event. A lot of times I find that those quick meetings are almost like speed dating or those transactional, here's my business card. This is what I can do. And how can I help you? Or how can we have a relationship? Because we can help each other and it's more transactional. So I love what you're saying about being intentional, slowing down and really being in the moment. It's so important. And having a respect for those words Really? I mean, I never thought about it that way. And I like that whole idea of really having that meaningfulness behind what you're saying. And it's not that we're not being intentional or meaningful, but when you do slow down, you are more intentional. You use fewer words. So when you think about the word presentation, it includes present. Right. You want to be a present You also want to realize your presentation is a present as a gift. Mm, I love that. And then I take that word and dissect it in more pre-sent. So you want to send the vibe ahead of time being well-prepared. Do your research on who's in the audience. Having water near you so you can have it in case you're, you know, or a Kleenex if you need to sneeze, whatever it might be your lipstick, all those things. So you want to have the pre-sense. So when you present, you are present and then you are realizing your words and your thoughts and your ideas are a gift. And when you have those three together, it nourishes you, it nourishes the audience 
it makes it all much calmer. And I'm just made a mistake at all calmer. My voice went up as if I'm doubting what I'm saying. So this is where I catch myself saying, you don't want to have your words go up as if, gee, are you listening to me? Am I important enough for you? You know, so I, I, you want to watch your words fall. So in fall, there was a, it was a fight there in that word fall. So you want to think my words are going to fall. It's a statement. It's a sense of confidence. You are a present, not you're a present. Right. You know, and my mother's the first person who pointed this out to me. I was in the, doing a job interview on a phone call back in the days when we did, you know, phones and she slips me a note. She goes, honey, I know who you are. I'm not sure you do more later. Love mom. Wow. And and I'm like, okay. And, and she said, you started the call. Hi, I'm Diane Darling. Well, are you Diane Darling? Are you not? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'd really like to work for you. Well, do you, or don't you, you know, it's like, I've never had children, but if you went in and say, you know, hi, I'm Susan's mom. Are you Susan's mom? Are you not Susan's mom? I'd like to pick her up. Well, do you, or don't you want to pick up your kid? It's that inflection. Absolutely. And so being aware of that inflection is so important. So I totally get it. And I think my growing up, my mother did the same thing and she had me in front of the mirror practicing note cards, saying things over and over. Yes, it might've been repetitive, but the inflection, the presentation, your stance, all those things I had to practice continuously because even though I know who I am, there might be an up day, a down day. But when you start getting that into the subconscious, those habits, what you learn, then it becomes more reflexive. I'm quite intrigued with acting after taking the class, which was a long time ago, and actually having watched a lot of TV the last two years, more than I would normally do because we were in lockdown. And you watch programs such as The Crown that are beautifully Mm -hmm. done. And then you watch stupid stuff that makes you laugh, like old episodes of MASH or something like that. And then rarely do I watch any of the reality TV. But when Mm -hmm. you see all of that, it's such mayhem. And the reason why it's mayhem is they don't practice. They don't think ahead of time. It's all, it's very cheap TV to do, which is why TV productions like it because they don't have to do any scripting. They don't have to do any sets. You know, you just draw people on an Island and you have them fight. What could be better? It's just, it's, it's, you know, it it gets attention. And I, and one of my fellow speakers has been on Survivor. So she was an interesting person to talk to about it, but it's very cheap but it's not necessarily nourishing. It's not necessarily a, you know, you kind of afterwards thinking, why did I do that? Whereas when you watch something that's well done, you know, a Ken Burns, you realize the production value of the thought and the research, you know, and then you see someone like, you know, Daniel Day Lewis play Lincoln or Colin Firth play the King or Meryl Streep play anything, you know, you realize, right. (laughs) You know, you, you see, and they play, you know, it's not them, they, but they get into that person and become it. So I often realize that I have to almost realize that I'm playing a role. When I, last night I gave a, one of my first talks and I was on a panel in two, three years, I think I've done, you know, maybe three, you know, since COVID first started that were in person and, um, and not most of them have been recent, obviously. And we did a pre-call, you know, so we all kind of decided who was going to 
divide it out for what, you know? And so there's a bit of thought and preparation. Could we have all shown up? Yes. There was one person who probably would have just talked the whole time and she still talked a lot and she was very funny and very engaging. And I think she was there to recruit, I think at the end of the day, because she, mm-hmm. she runs a very compelling company, but that wasn't my mission. My mission was to share information. Absolutely. And I think it really is important to know your demographic, your mission, being intentional, what your purpose is. So doing your research, all of that. I used to not dread, but love to be the interviewee. Loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it, because it was a challenge for me. And I thought about my position, the way I sat, if I was going to lean forward, sit straight up, the confidence, turning that conversation around and really making it mine. And I would walk out of there confident knowing I'm going to get that job. I'm going to get that job. In almost every case, I would get a call saying, you got the job. But that was because it took practice. That's because it took a lot of what you're talking about, that insight, doing your research, so important, knowing your demographic. And also starting off with creating some type of relationship with your audience. What's going to bring you together? What's that middle ground? What's that common theme or purpose? Whether it's a core value, whether it's the mission, that's what research says. So my next question is, you are a leadership coach who specializes in strategic growth, outreach strategies, and building an effective network. Can you tell us a bit more about this area of your professional background and why building relationships and knowing how and why this is so important? Everything in life is relationships. I can't get up without a relationship with my toes. I mean, I jokingly talk about this. When I was in person, I would the final thing I would do is I would have a volunteer come up with in front with me and we would lean forward as far as we possibly could without falling over. And I say, what's stopping you? My butt, fear, whatever it might be. And then finally, somebody would say, you know what? It's my toes. They, they're that, that's what actually is keeping me from, imagine, imagine you don't have toes. Every, right. All your listeners should actually stand up right now and lean forward and realize the, the value of the toes, that little leverage that they offer. How big are your toes compared to the rest of your body? It's the thank yous. It's the check-in ins. It's the, I saw you got promoted on LinkedIn. It's the, um, I haven't heard from you in a while. It's the, I'm home, I'm alone, I'm running a business and I'm going out of my mind. Can you give me five minutes to just have a primal scream? I won the biggest contract ever. I lost the biggest contract ever. We need to have tiers of people who can provide those touch points for us. So I encourage people to have a database where they tag people there's going to be a tag for everybody. Then there's going to be your your network and your network really should not be much bigger than 200 people. You really cannot manage. When people say, I've got 10,000 people in my network. I'm like, you got 10,000 people in a database, you know? Right. And then, so you've got this 200 to 250 people. That's a really important list for you to keep going and maintaining and touching base with and contacting and what I think in many cases, and one man actually said this last night at the event, he says, I think I'm over networking. And I'm like, you could well be. And I think in many cases, I over network because I collect really interesting people, but then I don't talk to them again for who knows when, 
you know, um, and I'll see them on LinkedIn and I'll do a congratulations to like, oh yeah, nice to hear from you. I'm like, why didn't I do that in between? So you've got your 200, 250, and then you've got your inner circle, which is about, let's say 50 people. Those are the people who I have a side gig. I'm not very active in it right now, but I teach people how to watch American football. You can go to watercoolerfootball.com and it'll bounce you to a segment on CBS News where um, it was my idea. And unfortunately, they cut me out of the whole piece because women teaching football wasn't apparently news. But anyhow, Hmm. um, I digress. But, you know, I was teaching at the British consulate and I partnered with an athletic director. And my whole premise is if you can't speak sports, it's hard to network. And so it was so funny because we had 100 people there. I think we had about 10 nationalities. And afterwards, all the Americans said, can you do the same thing for teaching us cricket? So when we go to India to see Mm -hmm. our tech teams, they're all talking about cricket. And we have no idea. We've watched maybe a little bit about cricket in, you know, um, the crown or something like that or Downton Abbey. But it looks like a really weird game. Why are men wearing white in sweaters and hitting something that looks like a golf club that's fat is how I describe cricket. So. You know, I, it, but it's a, it's a topic of conversation. You know, you're watching Ted Lasso now, one of the funniest shows around. And, you know, it's about real football as they say it, because it's soccer. And so if you have these conversations, sports used to be on the sports page, then it went to the business page because of the money in sports. And now it's on the front page. Absolutely. And then the lat, then the next two groups is your PBA, your personal board of advisors. And everybody as a business or even an individual should have, you know, five, six people you talk to about work. And I, I'm going for the biggest contract ever. Can I have you read the proposal? I'm, you know, going to ask for a dollar amount I've never asked for before. Can you walk me through it so I don't hyperventilate? I need to let go somebody who I've, who's been with me for 10 years, but they just plagiarized and they lied. And I have to just cut this where it's going to go. And so there's that group. And then there's a last group that I call FFF, which are your friends, family, and fools. And these are people because they like you because they have to, or they just do. And often I will get a call from somebody saying, can you coach my spouse? I want to have date night. I love them. I'm, I care about their work. I don't want to talk about their work and be their business therapist I want to be their wife, their husband, their partner, whatever it might be. And they need a break from all of that. So I encourage people to find who you need. And in some cases, the people who are in proximity may not be the right match. I will often turn somebody down for coaching because I'll like, you really need a therapist and I'm not qualified. You know, I love that you say that because I am a coach, but I also have a doctorate in clinical psychology. What's important to me is when coaches coach and know what the line is between coaching and counseling, because you can really hurt someone and it can be a liability. And so that referral process is so important. And somewhere in that diagram of who you get to know, it's really important to have in your database referral sources because you just need them. They need to be there and you need to be able to access them. And that is so important. And I love 
all those different levels you have mentioned because they are so important. And you're absolutely right. I have friends saying, I have 17,000 people in my network. Yeah, like you said, you have it in your database. But I have a handful, and I've always said a hand, maybe a couple handfuls of those that are in my smaller circle that I meet with every month that I check in with and say, how are you? I mean, the way... I jokingly say that the way I know someone is in my network, they'll help me move. They'll take me to the airport at six o'clock in the morning and they'll loan me money. And if they don't pass that, that doesn't mean they're not in my network. It means they're not in the network that's going to help me move. And if I'm in, you know, a good financial position, I'll hire movers. And then, you know, and, and same with going to the airport at six o'clock in the morning, you know, and if I hopefully don't need money, then we're in good shape. I do think our relationships with money are one of the more traumatizing ones we have our whole lives. Oh yeah. We call that money DNA. And the earlier we can accept that my dad was a college professor, lots of reasons to love him, but his relationship with money was so um, detrimental to our family well-being um, for many ways. And if I could, you know, wave a magic wand, if I, every so often I come up with a idea. If I was Melinda and Mackenzie, Melinda Gates and Mackenzie Bezos, I would find a way to have us talk about networking and big building relationships. I would come up with a curriculum that third graders would start counting apples And then they would be in charge of the snack at school. The fifth graders would supervise the fifth, the third graders. The sixth graders would begin to think about the meal plan. The eighth graders would begin to think about who's the, the supply chain, you know, and then by the time they're in high school, they're actually running the school cafeteria because food and money are two relationships we have that are lifelong that can be blessings or curses you know, there's so much research about what you eat impacts your mental health, your, obviously your weight. I don't know why this happens, but when I'm eating junk food, I inevitably within 24 hours need to fill up my car with gas. And I'm like, would you put in water to your gas tank? No. Why did I just eat junk food and expect to feel healthy? Right. Well, I love all of that insight and wisdom. I'm going to move on to the next question, which is about your book published by McGraw Hill called the networking survival guide. And I just have to say, wow, one of the big five, that is a huge accomplishment. Brava. Tell us about the book. So quickly, I will tell you about how I got that deal. Okay. They called me and asked me to write a book. That's fantastic. They called me December 4th, 2001 less than 90 days after September 11th, 2001. And on September 11th, 2001, my business that I was starting called Lost and Found basically went under because airlines and hotels were not worried about your lost laptop. They were worried about something much more serious. And I was starting a business that was going to help you find your laptops. And I had taken my savings and I put it all into the business And it was all in my name. I was not, I made a huge mistake. I didn't incorporate. I didn't put it into the business name. So I was liable for all of that debt. 
So I share that with you with true intent, with talk about resolute. I share these stories because I think people need to hear them. If any of your listeners are doing this, they need to slow down, take five to 10 minutes, go to legal zoom, reach out to your network, find somebody who can help you incorporate, protect yourself. I did not because I was in this. Of course, it's going to work on the Enneagram. I'm a seven which is the optimist, which is good. But sometimes you kind of need to have a little bit of a plan B girlfriend, which I did not have. So flash forward, somebody had asked me if I could do a workshop about networking. And this was end of September, literally a few weeks after all of that. And I'm like, why would I talk about networking? And they said, you got a meeting with the Four Seasons general manager to talk about lost and found. How did you do that? And I'm like, well, they know so-and-so who introduced me to Summer, who introduced me to this person. And I'm like, okay. And they said, well, so you network. I'm like, I do? Because I actually thought networking was sleazy and unbecoming. I really had a very negative Rodney Danger field. I don't get any respect style. And then like, no, Diane, it's very authentic. You, you're not one of those sleazy people. And I'm like, okay. And I said, okay, I'm from Indiana. I'm going to do a play a David Letterman top 10. Give me 10 questions. I'll answer them. I did that. And somebody in the back of the room said, that was a great talk. What is your speaking fee? And that is how I started teaching networking. Another person unbeknownst to me, her name's Martha. I'm not going to say her last name for a variety of reasons. I didn't know it, but she was being interviewed by the Wall Street Journal on networking for your job search. And she said to Joanne Lubin of the Wall Street Journal, you need to interview Diane Darling because she teaches you how. Everybody says do it, but she teaches how. What if the person doesn't return your phone call? What I mean, this is pre-LinkedIn, pre-Facebook, for goodness sake. How do I find the right contact? Do I send them a thank you note, et cetera? So Joanne calls me. She writes the article. It appears in the Wall Street Journal, December 4th, 2001, in McGraw-Hill calls and says, I'm an acquisition editor. Would you write a book? NBC Nightly News calls and says, when's your next workshop? I said, tonight. And they said, great, we'll send a film crew. I had to go home and change because I was not in TV-friendly clothing. The first phone call I got that day was from someone said, congratulations for your article in the Wall Street Journal. Would you like to buy a plaque? God love America. Something's always for sale. Well, that is an incredible journey and evolution as to how you wrote that book. So then you get a contract for 60,000 words and you're like, oh my God, I could barely write a paper in college. So I just had to lock myself in a cabin in Vermont and just start typing like Schroeder. And I reworked it. At first I was like networking for jobs, networking after you move, networking for donations, networking to get sales. And I'm like, they're all the same thing build relationships. So I flipped it and said, build relationships. How? Dealing with rejection. How? Remembering names. How? Yeah. I love that. That free association, that analytical thinking, all of that and bringing that title together to the networking survival guide. And it's in several different countries. It has many different editions now, correct? It's got two edi- one's got two editions and then there's an ADD version of it. I jokingly called networking uh, for career success. Collectively, they're in nine languages. And it's so bizarre when you look at a book you've written and you can't read it. Well, you did it, you wrote it and it's out there and it's helping people. And that's what's important. So we have talked about so many different things today. You've given us so many different steps to consider, whether it's speaking, writing, 
interview, you name it. There's so much great wisdom here. But my last question is, if you were to leave the listeners with some words of wisdom, what would they be? You never know. You never know. I lost out on a speaking gig because they didn't think that I was senior enough. And it was a sting, but it was also unfortunate for the listeners because I I actually ended up at this conference and they had told me that they were not going to have a keynote speaker. The keynote speaker had to drop out and my name came up, but they felt like I was too junior in that sphere, in that world. And then somebody was just like, are you kidding me? She's great. But one person saw me as great and worthy. Another person said, well, you're too junior in, you know, in, I haven't been a CEO of a public company. I haven't, you know, led thousands of people. I haven't brought in millions of dollars in fundraising. I don't pretend I I have. I mean, I haven't. I, there's no doubt about it. I, I just felt sad when I pieced two and two together later on and realized that that was how they felt about me. And I will always be gracious and thoughtful because that's just who I am because I will continue to encounter them. But you, there will also be that moment of kind of pedigree and snobbishness that I feel is unfortunate. Well, thank you, Diane, for joining me on the Core Women podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure being here with you. My pleasure, indeed. I look forward to future conversations, Summer. Thank you. You can follow Diane Darling on LinkedIn and at our website at diannedarling.com. Thank you for joining us on the Core Women Podcast with Dr. Summer Watson. We're so glad you're here and would love to connect more with you. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Core Women and on Twitter at Core Women One. For more about Core Women and Dr. Watson, visit corewomen.com. Want more support and resources for amazing women like you? Great. Join Dr. Watson and Jen Fontanilla at the Life, Love, and Money Collective, a core women production that aids in understanding the key traits that might be getting in the way of living a life that you are absolutely passionate about. Connect with Summer and Jen and find out more at thelifeloveandmoney.com.